0: From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry.
1: The first and most important thing is, is this a good career path still, or is it mostly on its way out, right? I'd say it's absolutely a good career path to get into additive manufacturing. There's, There are decades, many decades of good growth in this industry left. So um, that's always a, a consideration when I'm talking to somebody about their their career trajectory. Like if they're young, does this career path have staying power for your whole career? And added, additive manufacturing, no doubt. We have many decades of amazing things ahead of us.
0: That was Brent Stucker, Brent is the Senior Vice President and Chief Scientist at 3D Systems. Prior to joining 3D Systems, Brent was a Distinguished Engineer and Director of Additive Manufacturing at ANSYS, 3 d Sim, The company Brent co-founded and led as CEO was acquired by ANSYS in November 2017. Brent led the establishment of ASTM International Committee F42 on Additive Manufacturing Technologies and its partnerships with ISO TC261, was the first chair from 2009 to 2014 and was elected to the ASTM International Board of Directors from 2015 to 2017. Brent has been a leading researcher in added manufacturing for more than 25 years, with projects ranging from new materials development for biomedical implants and aerospace and defense structures, to multi-scale modeling and control of AM machines. He was a professor from 1997 to 2015 with appointments at the University of Louisville, Utah State University, the University of Rhode Island, and VTT Technical Research Center in Finland before we get started head over to www3 degreescompanycom and subscribe to the podcast remember you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast including Spotify Apple Amazon or stitcher
2: Brent it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today I'm excited for the conversation and kind of hearing your career story because I think it's uh, super impressive of all the different types of uh, ways that you've worked with with additive so why don't we just jump in and and start from the beginning kind of I always start with like, where where are you from originally, and and how did what was kind of that first kind of tiptoe into either engineering or three D printing? Where where did you get your start?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. Happy to be here, Mike. Um, so I, I grew up in a little town in Idaho called Cuna, which uh, at the time was very small and just surrounded by farms. Uh, now it's a suburb of Boise, so it's all grown up around it. And went to University of Idaho as an undergraduate. That's the main research university in Idaho. And while there, uh, joined uh, ASME, uh, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, and was reading in a mechanical engineering magazine, probably 1991, 1992. I don't know. I'd have to go back and see if I could even find the article. Um, So that was, I guess, 30 years ago, 29 years ago, uh, about this whole new area of rapid prototyping, stereolithography, um, FDM, laser centering. thought, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. And then uh, um, a year or so later when I was heading to grad school, I um, had a National Science Foundation graduate fellowship that basically let me go anywhere in the country and it would pay for my tuition and fees and give me a stipend. So then I started looking around for great advisors then uh, since I could kind of go anywhere and chose to go to Texas A&M and work with a guy there, uh, Walter Bradley, who I really respected. And as we're talking about what do you want to do for your PhD, uh, It was uh, I had a little bit more flexibility than most people. And I said, well, this, this area rapid prototyping is really interesting to me. I've, I've read a little bit about it, don't know much about it but maybe we could build a PhD project out of that. And so that's how I got going. Um, and then at that time, because it was so new, I could basically read everything that ever was published because there wasn't very much that was published and uh, spent an entire summer uh, before I went to grad school, basically um, going back and forth to a library, actually in West Virginia, which is where my... my uh, wife, uh, my current wife was living back when we were dating. She was living in West Virginia. So moved out there, lived so I could live close to her and you know, read everything I could find in various libraries at universities in West Virginia. And then did a tour of the whole Northeastern United States to visit every single facility that I knew of had a rapid prototyping machine. So I visited Ford and GM and some little places with FDM machines and just a number of places. In fact, I found my my little trip diary. The other day, as I was unpacking some old boxes of that trip I made in 1993, and out of that came some ideas for my PhD project, and that's kind of what, how I got started.
2: How did you find those people that had these machines?
1: You know, uh, I don't know. I, I'm assuming I found them from like the literature because there wasn't there wasn't the internet to search back then, right? Um, so I have no. Uh, the fact I wonder if I have those in my old notes because it was tough to find people back then. You couldn't just search somebody on the, on the internet. You couldn't um, yeah, which is how we'd all find people today. Right. So how I found that the actual people who were running the facilities and found their phone numbers and called them and set up these tours. I have no idea, but I saw, you know, old cubital machines and laser centering machines and, you know, some of the first Stratasys FDM machines and um uh, stereolithography machines and, um, got into some, you know, some of these automotive factories that I, actually at this point, I can't even remember how I got myself in there. I guess it was just somehow sweet talked my way in to finding the right people. Um, that's a great question. I haven't thought about that in years.
2: And, and did you always want to go down kind of the graduate school path? Was that kind of your intention as you, as you started your university education?
1: No, in fact, I started out as a, Um, as a double majoring in mechanical and electrical engineering, because I thought, hey, if I had a major in both of those, I could really do just about anything, and uh, did that for a couple of years, and um, after my sophomore year in college, actually had an interesting experience, um, where it, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, and it, and it, it felt like very clearly actually through something that was supernatural, <laughs> made me think I should be a professor. I felt like God was calling me to be a professor and it totally just flipped my entire way of thinking about my future uh, overnight, to be honest. And so then when I headed the, down the academic path, um, then that's when I decided to go get my PhD and totally shifted everything down to that path. So, um, yeah, but it was, it was, a uh, was sort of an uh happened the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college that kind of my whole life shifted at that point
2: point. and after you did this tour of all these different facilities what what did you end up deciding to to study for your thesis
1: yeah so at the time um you know every, everything was new you know so people were thinking well could we make tooling this way could we make real parts this way uh, and so one of the things that a bunch of people I talked to said, you know, if we could make, if we could print EDM electrodes, so EDM, electrical discharge machining, is how you make today and even and back then uh, made almost 100% of your injection molds, your die cast tooling. So you would form an electrode and you'd burn it into the metal to get the shape there for tooling. And so I said, hey, if we can make these electrodes with rapid prototyping, we could dramatically um, simplify the way we make tooling, and you could, you know, burn that shape into any number of metals. And so, the four years of my PhD work were spent, you know, could we process the types of metals and ceramic composites? Well, first of all, I had to kind of look at the research and say what could be built and what what could potentially be a good EDM electrode. And so, there was this unique material. Made up of zirconium diboride and copper that has some amazing electrode performance characteristics, but it's impossible to machine. So we ended up, um, I ended up developing the whole science of how do you take um, using a binder on an on an SLS powder of ceramic, run it through a, a, a traditional SLS machine, form the green part, do the binder burnout, infiltrate with copper all kinds of issues of chemistry compatibility between copper and this alloy and infiltrating it. And um, and then all kinds of experiments having to do with using it as an electrode. So that was my PhD work was a whole combination of you know the physics of, of EDM, the material characteristics that would make a good electrode, and then how to form a composite um, of that material using laser centering.
2: And as you're going through kind of the the research your your thesis and kind of writing and publishing i, I guess is there a different mo- so when i when i did my phd i i probably it was like 99% sure that i wasn't going to go down the kind of professor track mm-hmm. so is there anything different that like it, as you you kind of knew that the professor kind of was where you wanted to go was like anything different that you would do where you like really focused on writing papers or kind of interfacing with companies or finding like hey where would i want to work or like what what was that like
1: yeah that was um what was new to me because i was a first generation college student so i went to college really without knowing anything about what academia was about so as i learned about it you know i think some of the core things if you want to go down that academic path Certainly, everybody knows you've got to learn to publish, right? Because it's like the publish or perish phrase is true. If you don't publish, you're not going to make it in academia. But what a lot of people don't recognize is um, to be a successful academic in engineering, you actually have to be an entrepreneur. You have to be able to, to start a research business. You have to sell your product to somebody, your product being, you know, I'm going to mentor grad students. I'm going to create new, going to create new um knowledge that's going to move the world forward then you have to find somebody who will pay you (laughs) that to do that and so you have to learn how to write proposals where where can i go get money how do i play that whole game and so luckily early on in my phd because i had funding for my for my actual stipend i didn't have money for my research so the first thing i did even that first summer before i started my phd was start to work on proposals and sent proposals to the National Science Foundation, and in fact got got two two funded, which then funded my whole PhD project. Um, and so that was one aspect that was critically important: is to learn how to get money and how to run like a, a an engineering business. You know, how do I how do I create a budget? How do I sell an idea? How do I then run the program? So that that's I had a lot of freedom to do that as a grad student that most grad students don't get. So I feel you know really blessed. From that. Um, And the other thing I think in engineering is you've got to be connected to the practical. Like, what does industry really want? And so, from the beginning, um, everything I did, I did really closely with a group of interested companies, even in my PhD, to to create what are the goals of what we're doing and really understand the market potential. And took that through my entire career. Every place I worked as a professor um, you know, would gather, you know, create a center or some sort of, you know, consortium of of industry, um, together with then pulling in a bunch of government money, um, to help fund, you know, new materials, new machines, new software, all these different things that I've
2: researched over the years. And where was your, where did you land after you finished the PhD? Yeah,
1: after my PhD, um, it's interesting. I did. I had a really close relationship with DTM at the time, and uh, they had provided the uh, laser centering machine to Texas A and M for for my PhD work. Um, and then they actually gave me a beta laser centering machine to take with me to wherever I wanted to go, which is like crazy that that that, that they did that. Um, so when I was applying for jobs, I, you know, I had in my cover letter, and I also have this very expensive piece of equipment that when I move, you go. And they had also promised fifty thousand dollars for a furnace wherever I went. So it was it was pretty, pretty amazing support I got from some of the people at DTM. Um, yeah, it was actually Kevin Macaulay there at the time who 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 did that. Um, and so that really put me on a unique path to be able to go straight to academia without a postdoc. You know, I, one, I was in a brand new area. And if you want to go straight from, from PhD to, to be to be an assistant professor, the only way you can do that is if you're in a new area that, you know, that they people they want to hire in and there's not much. So it's a supply and demand problem, right? There wasn't much supply of people who knew anything about rapid prototyping and there was some demand for it. So that plus I had this equipment that got me a leg up to start immediately with a working lab, meant that I had quite a few offers. Um, And so uh, being a country boy at the time, I took the University of Rhode Island, which the university in Rhode Island is just in the middle of the countryside. It just had a great feel, um, had had some really famous professors there that I got to work with. And so I started out working at University of Rhode Island for five years.
2: Yeah. And then, as you kind of grew your, your research there, I'm assuming that's kind of like you're tracking with the kind of the growth of the industry as well, right? Like, yeah, AMUG is probably not AMUG yet. It's it may have not even been the 3D systems user group yet, right? It's kind of, it, it wasn't. Long. It
1: was, we had a, an SLS users group that I was a part of. Mm-hmm. And then there was a stereolithography users group that was focused just on 3D systems technology. Um, At the time, and then when 3D Systems bought DTM, we sort of merged those later on, but uh, in behind my shoulder, you might be able to see the little, uh, you know, my little dinosaur there from the SLS users group that, that was, you know, I got, I don't know, a long time ago. So I've been a dinosaur so long. I'm now like fossilized to (laughs) volume or something. So the, um, yeah, at the time it was, you know, completely separate SLS users group 3D Systems I think it was what 3D Systems North America Stereolithography Users Group. It was like this tiny little niche, um, which now today they merged and they grew into the industry-wide, you know, AMUG, um, like like you mentioned.
2: And so back at this time, you're kind of just starting your your professors, professorship. Like, do you? Are you like fully bought into rapid prototyping? You're like, hey, like this is going to change the world. Like, was there ever any doubt in your mind that like this is going to ma- be an impactful technology? There
1: was never any doubt because it was a game-changing disruptive way of producing three-dimensional objects. Um, so this whole concept of discretizing a three-dimensional object into 2D layers and then building them and stacking them, you know, it's just a is a disruptive way of creating geometry and so to me once you kind of bought into that vision that I can you know discretize a 3D object and stack it up and build it, then to me the rest of my career is about what's the applications like what kind of new machine could I make that would process material in a new way. You know, how, what's the, the energy sources? What's the layering methods that you could apply to this? And then what are the material systems that you could tweak or create from scratch that would be compatible with those energy uh, and stacking sort of phenomena? And so it, it, I really bought into that as, as something that had legs and was going to be in the future. And I remember early on, you know, just looking at the market size, which is pretty small for prototyping to start out with. But every little incremental improvement in software machines and materials opened up more market and more market and more market. And I could just see, hey, this is this has got legs for 20, 30, 50 years in the future. Um, You know, so I went all in on it and 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 basically decided everything I'm going to do in academia is going to be based around some sort of angle on um, what then back then we called rapid prototyping or or was starting to transition to rapid manufacturing a little bit maybe in the late in the late 90s um but still mostly rapid prototyping
2: and how did that feed into what you were teaching right because you have your research obviously is all rapid manufacturing rapid prototyping but would that come into your teaching as well in terms of your engineering courses that or materials courses that you're doing
1: yeah it did and in fact i mean early on that that meant um yeah, I kind of got assigned to teach what started out as like computer aided manufacturing courses. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon thereafter, I'm, I I proposed that we really should have um, you know a dedicated class for rapid prototyping. And I think in my first university we did call it rapid prototyping. Um, I think you know I think by the time I got to my second university, I called it additive manufacturing, but um, which is. Uh, another story how we came up with a standard new terminology happy to talk about that but um, yeah so I proposed a dedicated class on that and started building up semester worth of information about you know going through and here's the various processes so at that time it was just all random information there weren't really any good textbooks there weren't um, even any good ways of subdividing this area of rapid prototyping into technology types it was all you know, sort of trademarked machine names that various people had invented at that time. And it was a mess. And so that was a lot of my career was bringing like order to that chaos. How, how do I present this whole area that's very chaotic in its, in its nomenclature and then the way uh, people think about it? And how do I bring order to that and teach students in a semester to go from nothing to where they could have a successful career that industry and be able to navigate that and uh that's actually been one of the the great things that i I don't know how many of my former students uh have worked in 3d printing but it's it's in the hundreds because um you know i had so many of them even the first couple times i taught a course come back to me uh, after they graduated and say hey i got this job specifically because of your class because i could talk about the future of manufacturing and, and some technology that our, my company wanted to get into. And I already, and I already knew, you know, what they would should be interested in. So that was, um, yeah, that was a major part of my teaching. Um, and so I taught typically at most universities that I would, I would teach two courses as my primary thing. There would be additive manufacturing, there'd be material science. So I was never in a material science department. So some I was always in mechanical or manufacturing or industrial engineering sort of, departments and so because of all my research was very material heavy that was the other thing that I ended up teaching was sort of a practical approach to material science
2: so why don't we get into the the nomenclature now so talk you hinted a little bit at that because the at the the shift towards additive manufacturing um what what do you want to get into there
1: so like late in my time I think at University of Rhode Island and then shifting um into uh, Utah State University, which is where I moved in 2002, I was, I was thinking a lot about you know how do we teach this stuff. So la- the um, Laser Institute of America had a had a, a handbook that they were coming out with, and they asked me to write a, a section in that handbook on this er- area of um, rapid prototyping, and so brought on this new postdoc, uh, Janaki Ram from India, and we were just wrestling with how do we how do we even make sense of all of these technologies, and we thought about some, some authors were separating machines by, well, if you deal with liquids, we'll call it a liquid machine, and if you deal with a powder, we'll call it a powder machine, and if you do with a solid, it's a solid machine, so the solids, they would put FDM in the same category as laminated sheets or you know, or um, they would treat binder jetting as the same thing as laser centering. Or if it was liquid, they would treat, you know, stereolithography as the same as a melted wax printer. Um, or, you know, there, there's just, or they would say, oh, no, we're categorized by whether it uses a single point of energy. So that we'll call one dimensional or a, an array of energy, which we'll call a 2D machine. Or if we can like do use like a DLP chip, we'll call it a, you know, well, an array would be like, one and a half d and you know they had all these weird nomenclatures and all of this was like okay I can see why you split up the industry this way but it it frankly is not helpful <laughs> it's like it doesn't it doesn't really help people practically understand the difference between these technologies and so uh, working with my with Johnny Ram, we, we just spent a few months just brainstorming how, how do we make sense of of this, because it made sense to us. Like in my own head, I would categorize te- similar technologies into a group. But how do I how do I put it down in a way that makes sense to others? So one of the first things we did is said, what do we call this whole industry? And we chose to call it additive manufacturing technologies. And I think looking back, that was really the first major thing that was printed using that te- using that nomenclature was our handbook, and then that led to a textbook, which then was adopted you know by ASTM when we you know, the basic approach of my textbook was adopted by ASTM when we started the ASTM standards committee but you know you go back a couple of generations the first version of this terminology set was this Laser Institute of America handbook that we published and some of the unique things that we said like I was trying to make sense of things like high speed centering, which you now was was coming in research form wasn't commercialized at the time laser centering both the polymer and the metal and so we came up you know i just coined the term powder bed fusion uh, as part of that conversation you've got a powder bed and people were arguing about centering versus melting should we call it selective laser melting selective laser centering some people who were powder metal centers like that we called it centering because yep. we actually melted it like all of these silly arguments so I'm like okay let's just avoid that whole argument and let's just use the generic term fusion <laughs> and we'll try to short circuit people yelling at each other you know in an academic sense not in an actual yelling route in reality but you know so that's one term that just came up off the top of my head that is stuck in the industry now and we have we call powder bed fusion a whole category of technology and and I would say about 60 to 70 percent of the terminology we created for that handbook um, was used in our, my textbook. And then about 80% of what was used in my textbook ended up getting adopted by ASTM. So it went through a couple iterations to where it is now, ASTM and ISO standards, and had great input, you know, from from Ian Gibson and David Rosen, who then were my co-authors on the textbook that that we wrote together. And then again when Terry Rollers was running the terminology subcommittee for our ASTM standards committee, he and I worked a lot on the the terminology stuff. And I proposed basically the framework from our textbook, which with just a a small amount of tweaking became the international standard uh, for terminology.
2: Right. That's awesome. It's good to hear kind of the, the full history of how these terms kind of get originated because you never think about it. it, Like someone had to decide somewhere that like it's powder bed fusion. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. And it had, it really had to, it was a combination of how do I make sense of this for the professionals that I'm writing to? And could I use this in class? Like, could I actually teach somebody who is completely new to this? Would this be helpful to them? to have this categorization. And it was really wrestling back and forth with that for you know, a few months that, that came up with that.
2: And so I think I first met you probably after Utah State and when you were at University of Louisville. And yeah. so there, I think that was my first exposure. I was at like Loughborough at the time where in the US, I think you guys had to be one of the 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 most prolific 3d printing organizations around with all the the consortium and the spin outs that you were doing as well. So kind of what was the transition there? Like, and kind of the growth of is like the the industry was really kicking up. You were, you were there.
1: Yeah. I I would say um, the transition from Utah state or uh, to university of Louisville was really a big acceleration of, of, you know, my research worked closely with Tim Gornett and Tom Starr, who were there, um, had been there for a long time. In fact, i had known them since from the 90s. And, and it was uh, uh, finally got to work together in the the same team. Um, It's a little ironic, because back in 97, uh, Louisville tried to recruit me at the same time Rhode Island was. And and for there's for some stories I don't need to get, go into. I chose to go to Rhode Island at the time. So didn't give it you the good
2: about the-
1: Thirteen years later, <laughs> to decide, okay, I am going to go there and work there, uh, mostly because the leadership had changed substantially, and I felt like it was a much better atmosphere at that time to work in. Um, but at at Louisville. Really, that was when metal laser centering and e-beam was really taken off. This was just over 10 years ago started there. So got some of the first EOS machines and RCAM machines. Um, and I had been in metal, you know, um, deposition since '98. I bought one of the very first Optimec machines. So I was really familiar with the physics of laser material interaction to deposit, you know, fully molten solid material. But back the Optomic machine, of course, is a metal deposition machine rather than a, a powder bed machine. And so it was, it was not too much of a leap to move to direct metal laser centering as a research area because the physics um, and the sort of stuff I learned from working with the Optimac machine for so many years could directly translate. And of course, metal laser centering gave you a lot of benefits for geometric complexity at the time. And so everybody was interested in metal laser centering. And so that side of our research really took off developing new alloys, new applications, new um, you know in, increasing productivity of machines, comparing E-beam to metal laser centering. And at the same time, I started a whole area of um, predictive simulation of these processes. How do they work? How are, how are parts gonna distort? How's the microstructure changing? And so, that was going really, really well, um, uh, and in 2013, really decided you know th- that the software side was to the point where somebody should try to make this commercial, and um, but we couldn't find anybody who really understood the potential of it. <laughs> like we tried to show, like here's our papers, and they're like, well, we don't know how to do with that. Like it's all theoretical stuff. Uh, well, here's a little bit of code. Oh, we don't want know what to do with it because that code is just a, a a mess of PhD student, you know, sort of code, right? Um, you know, good code, but it's not commercially viable code in and of itself. And so we we decided then, um, late 2013, to form a company, 3D Sim, and um, spin that out, and then kicked off operations of that in early 2014. And but that was all while still being a professor, running my day to day operations, doing. You know, interacting, sitting on you know DARPA advisory committees and all the sort of stuff you do as a you know professor. So I was really split, split between two worlds of entrepreneurship and academia simultaneously, and um, it became overwhelming. Like I decided in 2015, I've just got to go one way or the other. Like I got to either let somebody take over the company, or I've got to leave academia. And at the time, I Decided. Well, I'm going to. I'm going to give this a shot. I'll be an entrepreneur. I'll follow. I'll follow this. What was at that time just one narrow portion of all my research, which was the software side. So I'll, let's go see if we can make that work. Because if predictive software becomes widely available and used, it's going to dramatically impact and benefit the industry. So, so I wound down my academic career and and uh, uh, left in in the summer of 2015.
2: So what would what kind of takeaways did you have from kind of your academic experience of kind of growing research teams and kind of securing funding, things like that? What, what was the biggest kind of takeaway that you then translated over to the entrepreneurship realm as you, those early days when you're kind of first starting the, the company?
1: Yeah. One of the things that was surprising to me was how much running my research lab as a sort of an entrepreneurial Enterprise was directly applicable to starting a real company, um, but the, the the issue was that if if you don't get the next research contract in academia, you still have courses you still get paid right you just can't hire as many grad students and and your research program slows down in real life as an entrepreneur if you don't get the next contract you may have to go bankrupt and fire everybody and like the stress of the difference between those is substantial i'm uh, i mean but as a as a professor some of the things that really helped me in my ability to be an uh, entrepreneur is um, both of them have to sell the potential for the future, because you're raising money. You're you're uh, and even as a as an entrepreneur, at least in the U.S. in high technology areas, you can ra- get a lot of money from the government with SBIRs and other types of funding, and so uh, all of that directly transferred from academia to entrepreneurship where. I still wouldn't raise a ton of money from the government in addition to from industry, uh, and in case this case industry or people actually investing in my company. But then when the product is in sort of an alpha stage, trying to sell them as an initial customer to pay for something that's, you know, maybe only half baked, <laughs> um, you know, that that's that's still what you do as a professor. You're always trying to find the early adopters who are willing to pay a premium to be the first one to try something. Um, so that's true in academia. That's true in entrepreneurship. So there's, there was a, there were a lot of um, synergies between being an engineering research professor and being a technology entrepreneur. That that really helped me a lot um, to to keep the company afloat. Actually,
2: and kind of, can you describe kind of the the trajectory of of the company? I mean, you guys were. I mean, it didn't take too long before you were acquired. Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we started early 2014, we were acquired in late 2017. Oh. So, you know, about three and a half years. Um, one of the things that's amazing is how much money it costs to build software. Like you think of software, oh, it's just code, right? It, but... Um, one is the science side of it is so complex that a lot of the things we thought would work didn't work, so we had to keep trying and trying on the on the science side, on the finite element side, and all these algorithmic sides. Um, some of the things we proved at a small scale wouldn't scale up well to you know bigger phenomena and larger you know larger models and things like that. Um, it mostly didn't scale up with speed as well as we thought it would. So then the, the predictions are too slow. So that's one side is the whole science side. The other side is that if you want to build good software, you have to pay a lot of money to hire good software people. Um, Good software people don't don't come cheap. And so um, we raised a lot of money and we spent a lot of money and it went away way faster than we thought it would. So I always tell people it's going to take, you know two times as long and two times as much money, at least if you're really lucky, or it's gonna take 10 times as long and 10 times as much money as you thought, but it's never as easy um, either in time or money or difficulty as you think it will be when you set out to do it. Um, And I think a lot of that is as a professor, You'll only have to show proof of viability like, and you can write a paper on it. And then you say the rest of this is left to some company to commercialize, right? And the student graduates and move on, right? Oh, yeah, And that's your PhD. Somebody got his PhD because they showed this new concept nobody else had showed before. You don't have to commercialize it. You don't have to get it to the 100%. Well, that last 20% is at least 80% of the work. And I didn't have a good appreciation for the difficulty of doing that last 20% when I was a professor.
2: Did you have, when you started out with the company, did you, did you have a vision? Like, was this going to be something that you were always going to sell or like kind of building it to sell to another organization or kind of, with, did you have a, any expectations early on of kind of where you wanted to take it?
1: I did. I mean, I, I really thought we wanted to grow it as its own standalone uh, scientific, uh, you know, Uh, simulation entity that would start with additive manufacturing and then move to other types of technologies that have similar physics and and expand as a standalone entity. And so that's one of the things that I was sort of a wake up call is the difficulty of doing that, particularly when you're working in a, uh, this was a completely new type of product. No one was buying simulation of additive manufacturing software at the time that didn't exist in the marketplace and so we have you know 20 something years of of um 3d printing history at the time but nobody had ever used simulation to help them in their operations maybe maybe in a a deep research you know portion of a company or something or academia so you you're you're trying to create a market at at um, the same time you're trying to sell something into that market. So, like, there, there was no market for simulation software. So, it was a lot harder to create the market than I thought and to convince people they needed it in the first place. And then, once we had done a decent job of convincing the market that they needed it, all these other competitors sprung up really fast with, you know, not the same kind of tool, but a tool that they claimed was helping in, three, in 3D printing. And so then you've got these companies with global sales and marketing organizations competing with a little startup that only has, you know, like one dedicated salesperson and, and you know, a part-time marketing person, right? And, and we realized that we, at the time, we realized we either need to go out and raise about $50 million to actually take this to market, or we need to sell to somebody who already owns a market and use use their sales and marketing um, expertise to bring it to market. So we went through a whole process of trying to down select the correct direction, brought in an investment banker who who ran, ran a big process. We got offers for both types of models. Like some people said, we'll invest in the company and we'll build it. Other people said, we'll buy you out and just integrate you. But in the end, by far the most compelling offers were to be bought out. And that also eliminated a ton of the stress of you know bankruptcy. To be honest, (laughs) once you're part of a big organization that's profitable, um, you know they may eventually choose to de-emphasize that product or something. But you're you're part of something that you know you're not you're not worried about you know the my 20 employees and their 50 combined kids and spouses and like all of a sudden we have 70 people whose lives are 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 um kind of make or break on whether our company makes or break. That's a lot of weight to bear if you really care about your people. And carrying that weight was was getting pretty tough. So that was part of why I chose to sell just some of that security for for the whole team. So that they had a future too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you spent well, what? another three, four years at ANSYS once.
1: Yeah. Almost four years um, at ANSYS helping, you know, try to build that product line within ANSYS before, before leaving.
2: Yeah. And speaking of that, so now you're uh, at 3D systems. And so what's, what's your role there now?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm chief scientist at 3D systems, which is a new role there. So we're sort of making the role up as we go. Um, So (laughs) Just under two years ago, 3D Systems hired a new CEO, Jeff Graves, who was at MTS before that. He's you know PhD material scientist in, in you know, long ago, but has been in the business world for a long time. and he came into 3D systems and really um, completely refocused 3D systems back onto its historical roots of additive manufacturing. And, and also decided we're not going to compete with our customers so we're going to sell off all of our service bureaus and be the, the solution provider you know we're going to make machines and software and materials and, and we're going to enable applications and um, also a heavy focus on healthcare and biomedical ap- applications you know producing um, surgical guides implants dentures you know aligners, all of these things in the healthcare segment. And we're we're now getting into organ printing, actually not just getting into it, we've been in it a long time and we're getting close to starting animal and human trials and organ printing and things like that. So 3D Systems is really focused in then on, on additive manufacturing and its applications in all industries. And and is bringing in a, a new... Um, set of technology leadership who've been in the industry for a while because a lot of their senior people who had been in the industry for a while had left over time. And so I was brought in as part of um, trying to add um, more, I think, industry long-term technology expertise at the leadership level. And so my job then, uh, having been around for almost 30 years and having worked in all kinds of areas of the industry, Um, is to make sure that 3D systems is at the forefront of each technology it's playing in so make sure our machines our material our software are um, competitive and market leading so that that's very sort of broad (laughs) kind of kind of charge but I'm I'm not in charge of the, the organizational aspects of it I'm I'm supposed to help with the technology aspects of it. So it's you know, how do we build the next generation machines? What are the technologies we should be looking at? Is there a university we should be partnering with? Is there a national lab we should be partnering with? Um, is there a company we should acquire because it has some you know, game-changing technology that we want to integrate with some of our equipment? So those are the sort of things I, I'm doing on a day-to-day basis.
2: It's almost like combining all your previous experience, right? Kind of looking at yeah. all, all different facets.
1: Exactly. And that's why, that's why I took the job. I wasn't really looking for another position, but uh, was recruited into this position and and decided to do it because it is exactly that it's uh, it, instead of just this narrow area of software I've been working on for the last you know uh, six years, it's basically said, I can play in this bigger sandbox that, that of, that I love to play in, which is, you know, new hardware, um, new, new, uh, software, of course, new materials, new applications. So really opens back up that broader, um, you know, additive manufacturing ecosystem to say, Hey, I can, I can start to influence all of these areas again, which is really exciting to me.
2: And where do you see, like, is really kind of the biomedical medical space, kind of the big growth area that you see for, for additive, or is it, are other sectors really accelerating as well?
1: I think there's quite a few sectors accelerating. I mean, that's one of them. I think there's a lot of growth potential there. There, there is still lots of growth potential in the aerospace market um, right now. One of the hottest areas is what people sometimes call new space, meaning like a, a SpaceX, you know, blue origin, um, relativity space. All of those guys are, are growing incredibly quickly and if this new space turns into, you know, more of a, a taking humans beyond, you know, our our planet on a regular basis, then, which is of course the dream of a number of these new space entrepreneurs, then that's going to, you know, continue to grow substantially for the foreseeable future. But at the same time, traditional aerospace is um, is really hot, and we're starting to see things like automotive, which has been something we've talked about going back to when I very first started in rapid prototyping, right? (laughs) Automotive drove a lot of the prototyping applications has always been what people have hoped to someday be able to produce end use components at scale for automotive. And we are finally starting to see that on the horizon after 30 years <laughs> where we can where we can say hey machines are getting fast enough materials are getting good enough that it, we are going to start printing you know real automotive components uh, at production scale. I mean of course we've been pr- printing automotive components for pre-production or for low volume production scales for many years, you know. Um, there's lots of little examples of that. But not pr- printing, you know, production parts for something that's, a, you know, a really popular model of a, of an automobile, for instance. We've just never been able to compete at scale for that, and I, I think we're, we're almost there. Um, and, and that, of course, if we can do that, we can do any number of other applications, right?
2: Absolutely. And so, as we wind down the conversation, I mean, you've had such a wide ranging career with a lot of amazing companies and experiences like for someone that's just starting out or looking to make a career change and it's already in manufacturing maybe like do you, do you have a piece of advice that, that you could share from from your experiences
1: yeah um the first and most important thing is is this a good career path still or is it mostly on its way out right i'd say it's absolutely a good career path to get into additive manufacturing There's there are decades, many decades of good growth in this industry left. So um, that's always a a consideration when I'm talking to somebody about their their career trajectory. Like if they're young, does this career path have staying power for your whole career? And additive manufacturing, no doubt. We have many decades of amazing things ahead of us. Um, then the second thing is, okay, what do I do to then differentiate myself within this industry? And I tell people, you know, become become a, an expert in something. I don't really care what it is, but find something that interests you within this area and get in and be the go-to person uh, for that area in your company, but in the industry. And then really start getting out there and being connected in the industry. Like go to AMUG, go to Rapid, go to Form Next. Um, If you're part of some other society, you know, that's, that's some niche SAE or whatever materials research society or whatever your angle is in additive. Yeah, of course, go and do those societies too. But, um, but get involved in the additive community. If you, if, if, well, if you're happy just to kind of sit at home wherever you live and not be involved that, then that's, that's fine too. You can have a good career, but if you really want to, be connected to the international community and really find, I think, a lot of the fun that can come from being part of of almost like a movement of changing the world uh, through additive manufacturing. And you got to go to you got to go to the trade shows and the conferences and get to know people and get to know um you know, sit down over a meal and just talk <laughs> about what are you doing, and 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 then look for opportunities to get involved in things like standards. You know, anybody, even a young person in a company, can get involved in a standards committee. It'll open your eyes to the world and help you look at things in a new way. So um, don't just don't forget about those opportunities. It, it's 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 very good for your career and just for keeping your brain thinking about broader issues related to what you do.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Look forward to seeing you at some of these upcoming trade shows. Thanks, Mike.
1: Perfect.